The Wheel of Crime podcast is a true crime podcast that includes graphic and explicit content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When tomorrow starts without me and I'm not here to see if the sun should rise and find your eyes filled with tears for me, I wish so much you wouldn't cry the way you did today while thinking of the many things we didn't get to say. I know how much you love me as much as I love you, and each time you think of me, I know you'll miss me too. When tomorrow starts without me, don't think we're far apart, for every time you think of me, I'm right there in your heart. tuning into part three of episode number five kids who kill the torture murder of sylvia likens we had so much information packed into this that we had to split it up into three different sections um so in the last episode we went through the trial and the verdicts that were handed down and i would love to sit here and say that it ended there and that those involved served life in prison like they were supposed to but that's not what ended up happening so I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode, but the cost of the trial was roughly $4,068, which in today's money would equal roughly uh, $32,200 some odd dollars. Many of the, uh, the citizens of Indianapolis were not happy with the verdict, expressing the same sentiment, stating that they didn't feel that they should have to pay for these people to exist in prison when they didn't show Sylvia any mercy. John Dean, who later changed his name to Nutty or Natty Bumpo, uh, he was the guy that wrote... Um, the House of Evil and was the star reporter uh, during the trial. Um, he said that a lot of people have compared this to the Lord of the Flies, but what this was was just a bunch of uncontrolled children. In this case, they had an adult supervising what they were doing. It was not children going wild, it was children doing what they were told. So let's start with 1970. On September 1st, 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court ordered a new trial for both Gertrude and Paula Banaszewski. In a four-to-one or in a four-to-zero decision, they cited four reasons why they were going to overturn the murder convictions. Number one, a prejudicial atmosphere due to news media publicity, which prevailed before and during the trial. Judge Rab's refusal to grant the women change of venue. 
Judge Rabb's failure to declare a mistrial, which the defendant sought because of the alleged prejudicial prejudicial publicity. Let's say that three times fast. Judge Rabb's denial of the request by defendants for a separate trial. Judge Norman Atterburn said that, quote, we think justice would be better served in this case if we retried in a more temperate atmosphere. Even though they were granted a new trial, they were not granted bail as murder is a non-bailable offense under the Indiana Constitution. Not just that, but the Indiana statutes say that a defendant in a second-degree murder case cannot be let out on bail while the case is under appeal. So either way, they're not getting out of jail while this is happening. At the time of this motion, the three boys, Coy Hubbard, Johnny Banaszewski, and Richard Hobbs, had already been released from prison. If you remember, they each received a sentence of 2 to 21 years in the Indiana State Reformatory. William Urbecker was quote, quoted as saying that the, new tri that the new trial, if there was one, quote, will never be in Marion County if I continue as her lawyer, which she has indicated. If it is tried again, it will be in another county, 100 miles north or south from here, where I don't think the jury will be so permeated with the idea of the hideousness of this crime. Now think about what he just said. Basically, I'm going to take this to a jurisdiction where nobody will understand the depths of the horrendousness of this crime. And like Prosecutor Newitt said in the beginning, uh, or in the trial before, a murderer doesn't get to complain about the gruesomeness of the crime. You know, the, just because it's gruesome, you did it. You did this. You should pay for it. You shouldn't get to pick apart the law. On one hand, I understand what he's trying to achieve as a defense attorney. However, I feel that Sylvia got lost in the shuffle somewhere. Did they forget that this woman led a pack of wolves that eventually devoured this little sheep? And what I find even more disturbing is that by the time these convictions were, over, were being overturned, only five years had passed since that first trial. Five years and all but two were already out of prison. I'm not going to go into the specifics of these trials because it's the outcome that we really want to know about. So they tried the women in Peru, Indiana, which is a small city, roughly an hour and a half to two hours north of Indianapolis. The jury in Gertrude's case, after deliberating only two and a half hours, found her guilty of first degree murder. It seems like it was a wash. In the state of Indiana, it carries a penalty of life in prison. Gertrude was the only defense witness again and she denied having any part in Sylvia's death and stated that the other witnesses had lied. Well, of course. So in Paula's case, she pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter to avoid another lengthy trial. Though she's never taken responsibility for her role in Sylvia's death, by accepting this plea, I feel that putting in this plea satisfied the state and saved her neck. It satisfied them that she was acknowledging that she did something in order to plead guilty for it. So had she pled not guilty, she may have ended up being in prison far longer than she ended up staying. In August of 1971, she was sentenced to 2 to 21 years, just like the boys. Personally, I can't stand this girl. She was an unrelenting bully, remorseless, and all-around piece of shit. Every time I look at her mugshot, I just see this cocky little smile. I just want to make her swallow her teeth. So here's the kicker. That same year, Paula and another inmate named Brenda Gray escaped from the prison from the, through the first floor window of a partially fenced building. Now, as an aside note, why in the hell was a prison not reinforced with fencing all the way around it is beyond me. But when you drive by it now, it is entirely fenced with barbed wire, the whole perimeter. So nobody's getting out of there. Apparently, Paula was attending a class in the prison on shorthand uh, in the administration building 
when she decided to go to the bathroom. Brenda just happened to be doing janitorial work in that same restroom. But within two to three minutes, the guards went to check the bathroom and both women were gone. They had torn a screen out of the window in the restroom and had just ran off. Gertrude was interviewed and over a telecast, she pled for Paula to return. Paula, you know what you're doing is wrong and you have everything to lose by this and nothing to gain. I'm pleading with you to please come back and do what's right. You can contact the superintendent, Grace Wallach, I think is her name. She can help you. Please put your trust in God and he will work things out for you and find an answer for you. I love you and I want you to do the right thing. So Paula, please come back. The, iron of the, the irony of this statement is not lost on me. Eventually, the women were found in Louisville, Kentucky on December 2nd, 1971. The Indianapolis Star stated that both women pled guilty in Marion County criminal court to attempted escape. Now, there was nothing attempted about this. They escaped, and for months. What outrages me even more is that she would only stay in prison for one more year before being granted parole. Let me repeat this for you in case you did not hear me correctly. In August of 1971, she is sentenced to 2 to 21 years, escapes prison that same year, and by December of 72, the next year, she's out of prison just in time for Christmas dinner. What the hell kind of justice is that? She should have gotten more time added for escaping, let alone for her role in Sylvia's death. Not just that, but by March of 1974, she's completely discharged from parole. All in all, she only served seven years. Seven years. She ended up making her way to Iowa and changed her name to Paula Pace. In 1998, she began working for the BCLUW Consolidated School District in Conrad and was working as a teacher's aide at the district's high school. The superintendent's office received an anonymous report in 2012 that Paula Pace was actually Paula Banaszewski. And somehow... It was linked to her Facebook page, but there's never really any clear definition of, or there's never any clear indication what, who tipped them off or what, because it was all done anonymously. Um, so it was unclear if the district had conducted a background check, but Paula was promptly fired after they found out who she really was. Soon after her dismissal, her, dis, her phone numbers were disconnected. Listen to this clip um, that was played on, the, on, I think, the news in Iowa about them finding out about Paula. It was a shock for a small Iowa town. A convicted killer hiding her identity was teaching in their high school. Tonight, Todd Megal reports she is out of a job. Todd? Kevin and Stacey, it happened in the town of Conrad, just north of Marshalltown in Grundy County. And tonight, a 47-year-old crime is the talk of the town. I found it kind of scary. Students at BCLUW High School in Conrad are just discovering a bizarre secret. It was just weird. One of their teacher aides, Paula Pace, is a convicted killer. In 1965, she was Paula Banaszewski in Indianapolis. She was a member of a family that tortured and killed a neighbor girl, 16-year-old Sylvia Likens, in the Banaszewski home. Paula's mother, Gertrude, was convicted of murder and has since died. Paula pleaded guilty of involuntary manslaughter at just 17 years old. It's bizarre that, that things like this happen. Pace's past caught up with her last week when Grundy County Sheriff Rick Penning got a phone call about Pace's violent crime. The, our information was totally anonymous. Uh, we don't know whether it would have been somebody with a vendetta or just a curiosity or safety for the students, but they want to make sure that everybody's uh, legit in the school system. The sheriff told school administrators, and that's when Pace was suspended. The shocking news spread like wildfire. It was just weird, I guess. Why was it weird? 
because we're in like basically the middle of nowhere and everybody's like well i've always wanted something big to happen here but we didn't really expect that to happen i guess i i don't think that she should be working with children in a, in a school it's been moved in a second to move into closed session apparently the school board agrees after meeting in a closed session tuesday night they voted to fire pace i recommend that the board of education terminate the employment of paula pace effective immediately for providing false information on her application the board refused to answer questions about the controversy questions about how this could have happened and why pace's killer past went undiscovered for 14 years one parent who showed up at the meeting hoped the BCLU administration has learned a lesson. I would definitely like our schools to step up and make it mandatory to do background checks and fingerprints so that something like this does not happen. This had a good ending, but it could have been a very bad ending. Now, we tried to ask what Pace lied about on her employment application with the school district, but the superintendent, Ben Petty, said neither he nor the board would have anything else to say about that tonight. Well, Todd, any response from Pace? Couldn't reach her for comment. She lives out of town and couldn't find her tonight. Got to wonder, though, did Pace have any sort of a criminal record uh, since the murder occurred so long ago? You know, she didn't, Kevin. The sheriff, uh, we asked, says that she was clean, and even some of the students we talked to say she was always very nice to them at school. So let's go back to Gertrude. While she's in prison, she's considered a model prisoner, and some of the women take to calling her mom, which is another sort of tongue-in-cheek deal here. In the years 1977, 79, and 80, Gertrude applies for clemency but is denied. In April of, eight of 1984, a Marion County judge grants her permission to change her name. To me, this is aggravating. She's found guilty twice of first-degree murder. She should not get to change her name and deflect scrutiny or hide behind some false mask to guard herself from what she's done. She should wear it, that name in shame. Anyway, 1985, only 20 years, only 20 years after Sylvia died, Gertrude is eligible for parole, but the parole board delays a decision to gather more evidence. September 10th, 1985, they grant her parole. On September 16th, a person named Thami Elmore, uh, president of the Society's League Against Molestation, or SLAM, brings to the, the sorry brings to the parole board signatures of more than 4,500 citizens protesting the parole decision, and eventually they would gather more than 40,000. On October 22nd, the parole board announces that they've changed their policies to allow greater public involvement in and awareness of parole hearings. On October 23rd. Parole Board Chairman Louis J. Gregory says that the, that the decision to parole her was 3-2. to two. On October 25th, SLAM, along with Jenny Likens Wade, file action against the board, contending that the board violated the state open-door law by voting in secret to release Gertrude and by withholding records to make that decision. On October 28th, the day that Gertrude is supposed to be released, Judge Dugan throws out the board's decision. The judge stressed that the purpose of the open door law is to ensure that, quote, the deliberations and actions of public agencies be conducted and taken openly, that the citizens may be fully informed. He did say, however, that he didn't feel the board acted in, in bad faith and that his ruling doesn't mean that the decision to free Gertrude was wrong. Now, this thrilled Jenny and her, and her mother, Betty. Jenny told the Indianapolis Star that she still had nightmares and that she's had two breakdowns. She said she didn't believe Gertrude has changed in prison. You don't change when you have that much hate in you, she said. Both she and her mother feel Gertrude should be in prison forever, as does most of the citizens of Indianapolis at this point. 
On November 22nd, the board announced that it would be that it would have a special hearing for Gertrude on December 3rd and invited the public, but seating would be limited to 30 people. At the time, they would hear from the victim's family and from Gertrude herself. On November 27th, Slam and Jenny Likens file another complaint stating that the board failed to follow the judge uh, follow Judge Dugan's order by withholding parole release investigation reports from the public. They also contend that the board violated the Townsend Victims Rights Act by refusing to grant Jenny access to the report. On December 2nd, Judge Dugan rules that the Department of Correction must provide psychiatric records of Gertrude and denies request to delay a second parole hearing. On December 3rd, 1985, Gertrude went before the board. Listen to what she says and what she doesn't say. She says, I take no joy in, in, in this because you see, I've lived with this for 20 years. And to know that you're responsible for taking someone's life is really hard to live with. She also says, quote, so really, this is not a victory for me. I wish people would just please forgive me. I can't undo anything. I know that the Lord has forgiven me and I have peace. I have my peace inside. Even though she went to church, took her kids to church and kept up appearances of being a Christian, she decided to become a dedicated Christian in jail. And I mean, isn't that the best place to find God? Isn't that where he hangs out? This is actually, this actually makes me glad I'm an atheist. I don't care to spend my eternity with the likes of Gertrude Benichev. Let's listen to a clip played on TV of Gertrude's parole hearing. We have another story of crime and punishment tonight from Indiana. This time the criminal is getting out of jail, but as Edie Magnus reports, not without a great deal of controversy. Under heavy security, convicted murderess Gertrude Banaszewski appeared before the Indiana Parole Board and asked to be released from prison after 20 years behind bars. I'm just asking for mercy, nothing else. Banaszewski was convicted of the 1965 brutal torture and slaying of a neighbor's child, 16-year-old Sylvia Likens. The girl was bludgeoned, scalded, tattooed, and starved by Banaszewski and her children while she lived in their home. Banaszewski was sent to prison for life. Banaszewski's request for an early parole from prison outraged victims' rights groups throughout the community who said she should never have a second chance. But in September, the parole board voted to give her that chance. Then protesters collected 40,000 signatures objecting to her release and staged a memorial funeral procession to Sylvia Likens' grave. The wave of protests persuaded a judge to vacate the earlier parole decision and order today's extraordinary hearing before the public. If uh, return Gertrude Banaszewski lose, she might as well put me in prison because I would be in prison in my own home for afraid to go anywhere by myself again. Banaszewski told the parole board she's a born-again Christian. She burst into tears when asked to talk about her crime. I can't do it, and I'm sorry. That's all I can say. And I ask him forgive me. That's all I can tell you. Once again, the board voted three to two to let Banaszewski go. The bottom line, you cannot bring someone who is dead and gone back to life. And I wouldn't be a member of this board if I didn't believe people could change. Banaszewski will be released soon as she already has a place to stay, a new job, and a new identity so she can try to lead a normal life. Edie Magnus, ABC News, Indianapolis. She left the prison with Reverend Reuben Fields, who was her sponsor for parole. The article indicates that he had been receiving death threats for supporting her. As she's getting into the car, a man drove by and yelled, Shoot the bitch! In protest, supporters of Sylvia held a funeral procession to Oak Hill Cemetery from the courthouse to pay respects to the girl, now 20 years gone. 
I think part of the reason she got paroled was her half-hearted attempt at, quote, taking responsibility. She says she accepts full responsibility for what she did, but she never really said, I'm sorry for what I did to Sylvia. I'm sorry for how I treated her and how I taught my children to treat her. I don't buy it, not for a second. She put the state through two trials, and at both trials, she says she never hurt Sylvia and that it was all the fault of the children. But now she's apologizing and take responsibility so that she can get out of prison. What a sorry piece of shit she was. That's right, was. Gertrude Banachewski changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen, her middle and maiden name, and moved to Iowa, supposedly to live with her daughter Paula, but that was never substantiated. She died of lung cancer in June of 1990. And while it's sad that Gertrude's life was actually better in prison than, she, than it was before she went in, the point of incarceration is punishment. Some would disagree and say that it's for rehabilitation, but when you're sentenced to life in prison, that's punishment. If life is better in prison, what are you really learning? If her life was better in prison, how on earth can she say she's sorry for what happened? At least in prison, she, uh, she got three hots and a cot, and even that was denied Sylvia. Was she even sorry for what she did? I honestly don't believe she was. You can't be sorry for something if you don't take full responsibility for what you did. And that means saying the words, I contributed to her death. And she never once said that. So here's an interesting little tidbit that I learned while I was researching this just yesterday. Uh, there was a woman named Giselle Villot. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's very French. Uh, she was in prison with Gertrude and Paula during their stay in the same unit. And she wrote a book called Justice From Within, Serving Time with Gertrude Banaszewski. The book is now out of print, and if anybody has a copy and would be willing to let me borrow it, I would be forever in your debt. So whatever happened to the other people involved in this tragedy? As previously stated, the boys were already out of jail by 1971. John Jr. was released into his father's custody after two years and finished school. He was the only Banachevsky child to take responsibility for, it, for their actions and actually show remorse. He changed his name to John Blake, and I think at one point they all did. Um, and, would, and he would grow up to become a lay minister after drifting aimlessly for a while. Even though he changed his name, he didn't run from his past. In fact, he spoke about it publicly. When the Westside Middle School Massacre occurred in Arkansas, uh, where an 11-year-old and 13-year-old ambushed students and teachers as they were leaving school by shooting them, uh, he, uh, five people died that day, and John spoke out to say that young perpetrators of crimes like this can be rehabilitated and not to lose hope. He reportedly told a, a reporter once, quote, my mom was a very selfish, self-centered woman. He went on to get married and have three children, but died in 2005 at age 52 from cancer. He is buried in Haybecker Mennonite Cemetery in Pennsylvania. Ricky Hobbs also served two years. Not much else is known about him after his release other than that at 19, or I'm sorry, at, in 1972 at age of 21, he died of cancer kind of sad but at the same time it's like good she didn't get to have her life either neither do you he's buried in Washington Park uh, East Cemetery Coy Hubbard also served two years before his release Coy never changed his name and remained in Indianapolis uh, I think he eventually uh, settled in Shelbyville which is not even an hour's drive from Indianapolis um, but he had a troubled life and had a lot of issues with the law. When he was 31, he was accused of murdering two men after he and a man named Kenneth Burton went to their home to rob them. His wife at the time said that he was with her at the time of the shooting. One of the men had been at Hubbard's home a few days earlier complaining about being ripped off in a drug deal. 
Burton, though he was allegedly the accomplice, was given immunity for his testimony. Hubbard was eventually acquitted. His daughter went on the, on the defense about Coy's role in Sylvia's death, saying, What gave you the right to plaster my father's name over the internet? I guess people like you really don't care whose lives you're destroying. After all, Sylvia Likens was 20 plus years or was 40 plus years ago. I wasn't even born yet and you're destroying mine. Thank you sincerely dealing with it. That she could make light of Sylvia's death tells me that her father never took responsibility or even acknowledged his role in the crime. After the movie Amer An American Crime debuted in 2007, Coy was reportedly fired from his job. Not long after that, in June, on June 23rd, 2007, Hubbard died. He had five children and 17 grandchildren. He is also buried in Washington Park East. Stephanie, as we know, ended up dodging all the charges. Though there was speculation on her role in the abuse, she was able to dodge responsibility and punishment. Some even said that Coy took the blame for things that she had done to Sylvia. After the trial, she went to live with her father. She ended up moving to Florida. She got married, had a few kids, and became a school teacher. Now, if you go to the website for sylvialikens.com, the webmaster on there, I guess, tried to contact her and had a couple uh, conversations with her. The conversations are interesting. I just don't know how real they are. So if you want to go check it out, check it out. Marie still lives in Indiana. She came out uh, and said later that she and Shirley were terrified of the abuse and felt that if, she, if they spoke up that they would have gotten the same treatment. She reportedly still lives in Indiana, but Shirley's whereabouts are unknown. James, or Jimmy, was only eight years old when this happened and was reported to have participated in the abuse but was too young to be held accountable. It's said that he had lived with Stephanie and her children for some time and also lived in New York. He was not remorseful for anything that he did and was rumored to have said publicly that Sylvia died on purpose just to piss his mom off. He reportedly was the only sibling that had chosen to sever his relationship with Gertrude's youngest child, Dennis Jr., perhaps out of jealousy. Now, Dennis Wright Jr., or Denny, was placed in foster care and eventually adopted. It has been also been speculated that his uh, adoptive parents were abusive, so he really didn't get any better life than he had earlier. Um, he ended up getting married and had a child, but died in February of 2012. Randy Lepper was originally charged with injury to a person, but the charges were dropped, even though he admitted to hitting Sylvia 30 to 40 times. He never got married or had children, and it was rumored that he was gay. There was also speculation, uh, somebody had said that he had came to Gertrude's house one day dressed up like a girl and she was disgusted by it, but that's never been substantiated either. He, uh, he ended up dying in 2000, I'm sorry, November 2010, but never expressed remorse for his role in her death either. There was an article in the Indianapolis Star about Danny Likens maybe about a year after Sylvia's death. Two young boys, an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old, pleaded not guilty of charges of beating Danny with a chain for more than an hour. Another boy, a juvenile, was released to his parents. Danny said that he was beaten and robbed of $30, and prosecutor James Buchanan said that the beating was incredibly severe. Not much else is known about him, but some reports say that he was a drifter, drifter for some time, then married a woman named Rosalie Weddle in 68, then they divorced soon after. Last update anyone had about him, was that he was arrested in Las Vegas in 2014 and could be homeless. However, on findagrave.com, on Jenny's memorial, they list him as deceased as of this year, but no other information is given. Benny Likens, Jenny's brother, 
had stayed at the Banaszewski house a few times before the abuse really got started, but it was decided that he would go live with his grandmother instead. He never married and was reported to have been diagnosed schizophrenic after serving in the military. Supposedly, his decomposed body was found on August 3, 1999 and was cremated, his ashes buried in Oak Hill Cemetery with his big sister. Nothing else I could find about him uh, talked about you know, his death or any reports about his death, so not really sure what happened there. Another article in the Indianapolis Star and from 1999 uh, titled Suitcase of Sorrow painted a sad picture of Betty Likens' pain. Betty and Lester divorced shortly after Sylvia's death. Betty married a man named Cliff Matheson, and when she died, he found a suitcase filled with newspaper clippings, unpaid bills, letters, and baby pictures. He ended up giving it to a friend who opened it and called the newspaper reporter. Inside were letters sent to Betty after the death of her daughter, letters of sympathy and encouragement, and her husband said she never recovered from her daughter's death. In the suitcase was a letter from her daughter, Jenny, telling her that Damn old Gertrude died. Ha ha ha, I'm happy about that. I would have loved to have seen inside that suitcase. Betty died on May 29, 1998 at the age of 71 and is buried in Crown Hill Cemetery. She shares a headstone with her brother. Lester Likens died in February of 2013 at the age of 86 in California and is buried at Riverside National Cemetery. Diana, Jenny's, uh, Jenny and Sylvia's sister made headlines when in 2015, her and her husband were, were leaving a casino in California on their way to visit their son for Mother's Day. They tried to take a shortcut but got lost in a back road that was incredibly rugged and very, very rocky, and they ended up getting stuck there. The couple were both diabetics, but her husband didn't make it. Diana survived on rainwater and a sparse bit of food they had. They were missing for over two weeks before they were found. According to an interview she gave last year for the Claremont Sun with Mark Hoover, she plans on making a movie about the experience called One Wrong Turn. In the article, she talks a little bit about Sylvia, and when asked if there's one thing she wanted everyone to know that hadn't been shared, she said yes. I will say one thing. They were both sweet, kind, loving, and trusting, and they were virgins. My sister Sylvia didn't even get to taste life. She was yanked up far too early for any young lady. I just want everyone to know that they were just sweet young ladies. It was a different era we lived in. I believe she's still alive today as I haven't heard any reports of otherwise and I can't find anything about her actually dying, so she is still alive. Now if that's true, she is the last surviving child of Betty and Lester Likens. So I'm going to play two clips for you, one um, about her being missing, the other um, reporting what had happened, plus her at her husband's funeral. So tonight, this year marks 50 years of what's been called the most terrible crime ever committed in the state of Indiana. It involved the torture and murder of 16-year-old Sylvia Marie Likens on our city's near east side. Well, tonight her sister has now vanished. It's part of a missing persons investigation in California that has homicide investigators wondering exactly what happened. The might be Emily Longnecker is following that search and she spoke with relatives here. Emily? Well, John and Andrea, Sylvia Likens' cousins in Lebanon tell me they hadn't heard from Sylvia's older sister, Diana, in years. Now to hear that she's missing brings the tragedy of Sylvia's murder back to them like it was yesterday. Sylvia, oh Sylvia, we love you so. Diana Sylvia, Bedwell never oh, forgot Sylvia. her little sister, Sylvia Likens. Sylvia, oh Sylvia, from our hearts, never ever will you go. Or the horrific way she died. 
tortured and murdered at the hands of her caregivers at a house on the east side. It was a crime that garnered worldwide attention. This is Diana at Willard Park in 2001 at a ceremony to dedicate a memorial to Sylvia. Now it's Diana and her husband who may be in trouble, and cousins who haven't seen Diana in years. Hope they haven't met a tragic fate like her little sister. I can't believe it. Things are happening again in our family. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department says Diana and her husband Cecil were last seen on surveillance video, leaving the Valley View Casino in Valley Center Sunday afternoon around 2. They were due at their son's house by 4 for a Mother's Day dinner. They never got there. I don't know if they were abducted or if they just went down a nasty hill that we just can't find them. Robert Acosta says his parents are both diabetic and depend on insulin. I do know that my mom has to make frequent bathroom breaks. And so I worry about what their jewelry on. I, I just, all these thoughts are going through my mind. I, I don't know, I just need answers. Family back here would like answers too. I'm sure somebody will find them. I hope they're alive. I do. They're still living with the ghosts of Sylvia's murder in a family they say that was never the same again. The family is not together no more like they used to be. We used to be really close. But we're not that close now. Investigators have done air and ground searches for the couple so far. Nothing. They were last seen driving a 2014 white Hyundai Sonata. Police have brought in homicide investigators, which they say is procedure in missing persons cases like this. Emily Longnecker, Channel 13, Eyewitness News. A wrong turn on Mother's Day stranded a couple for two weeks in a remote desert. One lived, the other didn't. Today, the wife who survived talked about their harrowing ordeal for the first time while at her husband's funeral. CBS2 Inland Empire reporter Tom Waite was there. While we were out there, there was no anger, no animosity. Speaking out at her husband's funeral, Diana Bedwell Knutson revealed her first account of what happened after she and her husband Cecil vanished for two weeks. The two were stranded after taking a shortcut through the desert to a family barbecue on Mother's Day. I told him, I said, even though he knew that he was not on the right road, I did not want him to feel any worse than he did. Diana, 68, and Cecil, 79, disappeared shortly after they were seen on security video at a San Diego County casino. They were on their way to their son's home in La Quinta for a Mother's Day barbecue, but somehow the two ended up stranded in a remote area, veered off the road, and became trapped. All they had was rainwater, a pie, fruit in the car, and, of course, each other. I told him, I said, we had... 29 wonderful years together and if we make it out fine if we don't fine i pray for safety for my husband and myself and no animals came i didn't want to believe it but he knew about an hour before he passed and he went so peaceful cecil served in the marines his son followed in his footsteps i used every law enforcement resource i had to find you but I just couldn't find you. Cecil and Diana were eventually found by ATV riders. Diana was still in the car, Cecil a few feet away. Today, Cecil got a proper send-off with full military rights. Mourning with the family was high-profile attorney Gloria Allred, who would not say if a lawsuit was in the works. As for what's next for Diana Knutson, she says she will continue her physical rehabilitation and grieving the loss of her husband. Reporting from Riverside, I'm Tom Waite, CBS 2 News.
Jenny Likens was her sister's champion. No matter what happened, she was right there fighting for justice for Sylvia. She was at both trials and she was there when Gertrude was, was paroled, fighting to keep her in prison. She suffers severe PTSD from her experience in the Banaszewski house, having to take, quote, nerve pills the rest of her life. She suffered a few mental breakdowns, but was never the same child after that. She and Diana were present in October of 2001 when the city dedicated a memorial to Sylvia's name in Willard Park on the city's east side, perhaps two miles away from the house on New York Street. The memorial is large, beautiful, and made of black stone, and it was paid for by actor-slash-filmmaker Ivan Rogers, who is also from Indianapolis. I will include photos on the blog. There is also a center in Lebanon dedicated to Sylvia called Sylvia's Child Advocacy Center. They renamed and rededicated the center just for her. Jenny married a man named Leonard Wade, and they had two children together and would have one grandchild. She lived in Beach Grove and died on June 23rd, 19, or June 23rd, 2004. She lived in Beach Grove and died June 23rd, 2004, three years to the day before, before Coy Hubbard died of a heart attack of age 54. She lived in Beach Grove and died on June 23rd, 2004, which was three years to the day before Coy Hubbard died. And she died of a heart attack of age, at age 54. She is buried in Mount Pleasant Cemetery in Greenwood, Indiana with her husband. The house on New York Street stood mostly vacant for many years, even though several owners and renters had occupied the house. In March 2003, Tracy Davis bought the house from Bob Perry and only then learned of its history. Apparently, Perry knew nothing of what happened there either. But after learning about Sylvia's death, Davis thought long and hard about what he wanted to do with the house. After prayer and consideration, he says he decided to turn it into a woman's shelter. He wanted to open it in August for women up to, uh, for up to 10 single women ages 18 to 24. Several groups in the city offered to help support and donate to the cause. Jenny was interviewed for the article and said she didn't care what they did with it. It's a hell of a place. They can burn it for all I care. But plans for the shelter never came to fruition. And that's it. That's the story of the torture murder of Sylvia Likens. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I did <laughs> a good job for you. Um, like I said, this was one of the cases that was most dear to my heart, so I wanted to do it justice, and I wanted to present as much information as I could, so that way you get an entire picture and not just a little synopsis. Anyway, stay tuned for the spin, and I'll see you soon. Everybody, it's that time again. Time to spin that wheel and find out what we're talking about next time. And it looks like family annihilators will be the topic for next discussion. Tune in next time. See you then. Sylvia would have been 70 years old this year. And this is something that haunts me. What would she have looked like? How many kids would she have had? What kind of man would she have married? What would she have done with herself? What kind of life would she have lived? If she didn't get to do any of those things because her life was taken from her too soon. But her life was not in vain and her death was certainly not in vain. There are so many things that this city has done to remember her and nobody is gonna forget her. You ask anybody in this city who's lived here long enough we all know about Sylvia Likens. That is something that our state and our city has to live with for the rest of theirs. 
but hopefully no other child will ever have to suffer the way she did. And for that I'm grateful. But for now, her death will be a reminder that not all adults have our best interests at heart. Not all adults are right. Sometimes adults get it wrong because adults are just big kids. <laughs> They're just big kids. Just remember that and be kind. Be kind always because shit like this happens and it happens more frequently than we ever know. All right, everybody, thank you for joining us for episode number five of the Willow Crime Podcast. Join us next time when we talk about family annihilators. And if you want to suggest a case or a category for us, please email us at wheelocrimepodcast at gmail.com. Go find us on Facebook. We're on Instagram. And you can check out our blog. Everything's in the show notes. Um, that's it for us. You guys have a great week. Tune in next time. Don't be a dick. Go home now. Bye-bye. I gotta go to the gym. I've got to go to the house of games.